0: If Mike jumped off a bridge, would you jump off a bridge? Well, of course I'd jump off a bridge. What do you mean, if Mike jumped off? I'd go off the bridge before Mike goes off the bridge. Why are we talking about bridges? I thought we were talking about hair, and now we're talking about bridges. And I want you to know, I'm jumping off that bridge. What bridge are we talking about? Welcome to Church of the Rock from Winnipeg, Stay tuned to this week's thought-provoking message from Pastor Mark Hughes. Well, this morning what I'm going to do is conclude the series I began, Family Fortune. We've been talking about the fact that your family is your fortune, and building the family fortune has nothing to do with money. And I've been doing it a bit chronologically. Started with singles, went to marriage, then last week we talked about kids. And today we're going to carry on with the kids and with a kind of a focus on when they're a little bit older and and how you deal with that. So last week, my message was entitled Kids and Other Hazards of Sex. This week, it's it's, kids are a joy, except when they're not. (laughs) And here's what I want to share with you. And again, you all know this. The greatest joy you will ever have in this world will come to you from your kids. The greatest grief you will ever have in this world will come from your kids, And, and sometimes on the same day. And, uh, you know, it's, it's fascinating how raising kids gives you such joy and such grief. So what we've been doing in the last two weeks is we've been going through this, an, acr- an acrostic, uh, like an acronym, only it actually says something, called KIDS. And KIDS, K-I-D-S, and I'm going to throw it up on the screen. And th- this is what we've been dealing with. Th- this is our job as parents, is to keep kids of value. That's the, the K. The I is to instill Our virtues, the D is to develop a family version, and the S is to stay vigilant. And so we're going to deal with the last two this week. I dealt with the first two the week before. And uh, what I'm going to do is mostly focus on this one of developing a family vision. I'm going to give you another verse that I think you all know, and it's it's Proverbs 22.8. And it's the parenting verse, and it goes like this. Train up a child in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. And every Christian school has this as their motto. Every Christian parent should have this as a motto. And it's a great promise that if you train them up in the way they should go, when they are old, they will not depart from them. Now, a lot of times we've misunderstood that. And we think it means that when they are old, they will not depart, meaning they're going to stray and come back. And you know what? That does sometimes happen. But I want you to think this a little deeper, because this actually says train up a child in the way they should go, And when they're old, they'll not depart. It actually says they won't depart in the first place, which would be even better, wouldn't it? How many of you want that for your kids? So let's talk about that. Some of you, apparently not all of you. (laughs) Let's talk about how you do that. Literally, it says train up a child in the way they should go. And what that literally is written in the original language is this. To initiate the child at the mouth of their journey. So at the beginning of their journey, you set them in a particular direction, and if you set them in the right direction and start to move them in that direction, developing a family vision, when they're old, they're going to stay on that path. That's what that literally says. Now, I'm going to give you an illustration today, a bit of a metaphor, an analogy, and if you don't remember anything else I say, remember this, and the analogy is teaching your child to ride a bike. How many of you have done that? Everyone with kids here. Nobody learns to ride a bike by themselves. A parent needs to teach them or someone needs to teach them. And here's the absolute best way to teach your child to ride a bike. You sit on a lawn chair, drink a beer, and laugh at them when they fall over. (laughs) No, that's the absolute worst. There's actually only one way to teach a child to ride a bike. And you put them on the bike, right? What do you do with the bike? You hold on to the bike. You point them in the right direction. This is key. You point them in the right direction. And then what do you do? You let go? You don't let go. What do you do? You run alongside. If you let go, they will fall down, go boom. And so you don't let go. You hold on, and you run along with them. And at some point, when they seem to be balancing, when it looks like they're going into the right, in the right direction, what do you do? You let go. And parents, sometimes, at some point, you have to learn how to let go. And if they're 34, living at home, let go! (laughs) It's time! I had one guy in the service, he yelled out, 36! I didn't know what he was talking about. I said, what, what were you yelling 36? He said, that's how old when <laughs> my parents kicked me out. I was 36. I thought he was talking about his kids. He's close to my age. He lived at home till he was 36. His parents finally gave him the boot. But this is how you teach a kid to ride a bike, is you run alongside, and you have them on the right path, and you hold on so that the, you've initiated them in the journey. This is what this passage is talking about, when it says, train up a child in the way they should go. And let me mention something else. When you're doing this, when you're setting them in the direction you want them to go in life, you actually make sure there's not too many obstacles in the way, like parked cars and motorcycles and things like that, right? And what you do when you're teaching your child to ride the bike, what do you do? You, you go somewhere where it's fairly open. Or if you are going to do it on the street, you make sure that there's no cars on the street, right? And you give them a nice wide berth, because they're going to have a little bit of trouble going straight. Isn't that true? Here's what I'm saying. It's about about developing a family vision where we have a a bit of an idea of where we want our children to go in life. And let me tell you, there has been a culture that has done this better than any other culture in history. And you know who it has been? The Jews. The Jews have been better on this. The Jews have managed to succeed for century after century after century. And there is a reason for it, and we're going to look at it in a minute. But let me tell you something what's going on in our culture. In North American culture right now, we have less than 2% are Jews, and yet they make up 33% of the US Supreme Court. 33% of the Nobel Prize winners in North America. 66% of the Tony award-winning composers, and I'm gonna make this last stat up, 99% of all comedians. I don't know about Eddie Murphy, but you know, <laughs> Kevin Hart, I'm not sure they're Jewish. So I, like I said, I made that one out. But they have been disproportionately successful, wildly disproportionately successful. Let me tell you something, that is not only true right now with the Jewish culture. We see actually many other cultures that are doing extremely well in our modern world. Let me give you an example. 25% of all black students at Harvard today are actually Nigerian even though they only make up 1% of the black population in the US. (laughs) The Nigerians, go ahead and cheer right now. This is your moment. (laughs) Let me give you another story. uh, There's there's two prep schools in New York City. They're very prestigious prep schools. Their students go on to the Ivy League colleges of Princeton and Yale and Harvard and whatever. 75% of the high school students in these two prep schools are of Asian descent, most of them children of first generation immigrants to America. You say, why is that? I'll tell you why. It's because the entrance to that school is 100% based on the performance in standardized entrance exams. And they're dominating and they're going in there. Now I know people are already getting nervous and they're saying, you sound like you're talking about racial stereotyping. I am not talking about racial stereotyping. I am talking about parenting and I'll prove it in a moment. People always get so nervous when you start mentioning races, you know? And I I like to talk about it because I think we need to celebrate our differences, and I like to make fun of it sometimes. See, here's what I want you to understand. There is no superior race in the world. We were all created in the image of God. But let me tell you what there is. There are superior parents, and I want you to be one of them. That's my goal for today. Let me tell you how this all works. There's a a book been written on it recently and and it's called The Triple Package. And it's fascinating what these two authors have come up with. By the way, one is Chinese and the other one is Jewish. That wrote this book, (laughs) thought I should point that out. And they're saying, why is it that some of these cultures are succeeding today and others are not succeeding? And they've come up with three characteristics of parenting and and of what they're instilling in their children. And this is what they are. And they are superiority insecurity and impulse control. Now, I'm not super comfortable with those particular terms and so I have reworked them, I'm, those are their terms, not mine. But I am gonna go through it because I think it'll be helpful for us. So here's what I'm gonna say, I'm gonna put it up. Uh, the first one was superiority, I'm calling that confidence. The second one was insecurity, I'm calling that humility. And the last one, impulse control, I'm calling it self-control because I had to rename it something, didn't I? And so the first one, that they say that they see that are in these cultures right now that are succeeding are actually this thing they're calling superiority. And what they mean by that is that the parents are instilling within their children a sense of exceptionality, that in some way they are not average, that they are exceptional. And no one has done that better, as I said, than the Jewish people. And do you know why they think that they're special? Because the Bible said they're God's chosen people. What would happen if you were raised in a race that, that whether, you were, whether you were a practicing Jew or not, but your parents told you, hey, you're God's chosen people. i go, pretty awesome. I'm God's chosen people. And i go off into life with this sense of confidence, right? That I was, I was God's chosen people. If you look in history, every time you have a culture, because all cultures rise and fall, every time you have a culture on the rise the people that are part of that culture have a sense of superiority or exceptionality. I mean you look at the Egyptians during the time of the pharaohs and the pyramids. Don't you think they would have thought that maybe they had something going for them? You bet. You look at the Greeks during the time of Alexander the Great. If your last name is the great (laughs) you probably got something going for you don't you? And then you got the Romans under the Caesars and And, you know, cultures rise and fall. And here's my point. I'm going to say it again. It's got nothing to do with race and everything to do with parenting. And it has to do with whether we're instilling these these virtues within our our children that they actually have the ability to succeed. And here's my point for you as Christian people. Do you really want your kids as average? Your kids aren't average. Are your kids, or are they not, children of the Most High God? Are your children, or are they not, endued with the power of the holy spirit from above does not the same spirit that raised christ from the dead dwell in your children yes absolutely and we have promise after promise in scripture that his children your children will be we taught of the lord and great shall be their peace and, and that they will be blessed from generation to generation to generation And so as Christian people, it's not a matter, don't misunderstand me. It's not about arrogance. It's not about thinking we're better than the next person. It's about understanding that God has put something within us as Christian people, that we have a mandate and a responsibility to have our children go in and be world changers and make a difference in their world. And it's going to take a little bit of confidence. And it comes from the parents. The second one is insecurity. Now this one seems contradictory. Why would, you, why would someone have confidence and at the same time, insecurity? And what the authors of the book, The Triple Package say, is that it actually is not a bad thing for there to be a little bit of insecurity in somebody, to have them a little bit off guard, and because if they aren't a little bit insecure, they become complacent. What you happens is you become overconfident, you think you can do whatever and everything, and I want you to think about something. Again, going back to the Jewish people and their ability to to succeed. They have been, the Jewish people, without question, have been the most persecuted people in the history of mankind. And yet, in the midst of that, they continue to rise to the top, generation after generation after generation. They have lived with a constant sense of a little bit of insecurity in the midst that there was people trying to kill them and eliminating them from the planet. Queen Elizabeth was once asked this question, what is the greatest evidence of the existence of God? And she said, without a doubt, the Jews, because if there was no God, there was no way the Jews could have survived. And so there's something happens when we're under a little bit of of, of pressure and a little bit of insecurity, and that is a good counterbalance to confidence. And this is what the authors of the book say that I've never heard before, And they say that they think what's happening in North American culture is that we are overemphasizing social skills and self-esteem. When you think about it, every book you will ever read on parenting will tell you the most important thing for your child is self-esteem. And so we live in this culture where we are bolstering and bolstering and bolstering the self-esteem of our children. We tell them, you're amazing, you're awesome, you're incredible, don't worry about a thing. Meanwhile, they're down in the basement playing video games. Woo! Level 17, I'm the king of the world! Oh, look at little Johnny, he's ruling the world. He's not ruling the world, he's not even ruling his bedroom. He's playing video games, for goodness sakes. And, And what we've done is we've stoked them and told them how awesome they are. And this is what the author is, again, I'm going to quote the book. They said, it's the difference, what you see in the difference in parenting styles right now is this. In North America, what we do is we say, oh, son, you're awesome. Don't you worry about a thing. Mommy and Daddy you will take care of everything for you for the rest of your life. And what these other parents are saying, that are instilling this sense of insecurity, is they're saying, you better study and work hard and get good grades. Otherwise, you're going to let down the whole family and end up a bum living on the streets. That's a whole different level of motivation. (laughs) Wouldn't you agree? And I started thinking about this. And I thought, you know, I think there's some truth to this. I think we have, as much as I'm big on self-esteem, I think we probably are overemphasizing it. You know why? Because we haven't attached it to merit. And we have have stroked the self-esteem and the ego of people without in some way connecting it to merit and effort, right? And you know, sometimes what I see, and I don't want to, you know, slag a generation, but I sometimes see some of the young adults and some of the millennials that are doing a job, doing whatever, that really aren't very good at it, and they think they're amazing. And I'm thinking to myself, what is wrong with them? Why do they think they're so good at this when they're clearly not? And I figured it out. You know what the root of it is? Mini-soccer. Yeah, you heard me right. Mini soccer. Anybody who's a parent here knows exactly what I'm talking about. Mini soccer is the game where they don't keep score and everybody gets a trophy. We put our son into mini soccer. I got to the first game a little late. I sat down in the bleachers. and I turned to this mother. I said, so what's the score? She said, oh, we don't keep score. That would discourage the ones that aren't scoring. I said, you don't keep score? Well, what's the point in kicking it in the back of the net if you're not going to keep score? So I'm sitting there sort of p- contemplating this. and thinking, this isn't right. I thought, if these people aren't going to keep score, I am going to keep score. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I'm not the only parent that wants to know the score. And so I was standing up and going, just in case anybody else cares like I do, the score is 3-2 for the red team. Would you sit down? You're ruining this for us. Well, you're ruining it for me because it's soccer where you keep score. And then at the end of the season, they give everybody a trophy. And they say, you're all getting a trophy because you're all winners. And they're not all winners. At least half of them are losers. You don't know that because you haven't been keeping score. But I do because I'm keeping score. <laughs> I'm not sure if you're agreeing with me or if I'm just entertaining you. <laughs> and you know, here's my point. And, you know, I mean, some of you are mad because you love mini soccer and you love the whole approach to this. But here's the, here's the news, people. Life doesn't work like that. You don't get trophies for showing up. You get trophies for doing something. And so I think it's okay to keep kids just a teeny little bit off balance and expect them to do something. I want you to think about something. Have you noticed how many people in Scripture God chose who were insecure? He goes and finds Gideon, what was his deal? Gideon said, I'm the least of my father's house and my clan is the weakest in all Manasseh, you'll do. He finds Moses. Moses says, I can't go, I'm slow of speech and I stutter. Why don't you send my brother, he's amazing, I'm not. You'll do. And he picks these people that are not overly confident. Do they have skills? Do they have potential? Absolutely. But are they a little bit insecure about who they are? You bet. And see, there's something about that. you know what I call that? I call that humility, is what I call that. When you think you're great, you've already lost, right? It's not a good place to go through life. It's good to have a sense of confidence, but if you think you're something else, you are not something else, and you are in trouble. You know what C.S. Lewis said? I love it. He said, true humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Did you catch that? Don't think less of yourself, but think about yourself less often. We're always thinking about ourselves. This is this story of this guy. He's concerned he might have an inferiority complex. So he goes to the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist runs a bunch of tests. And he says, well, I got some good news and bad news for you. He says, the good news is you do not have an inferiority complex. But the bad news is, you are inferior. <laughs> <laughs> uh, true story happened to me. So the first thing they point out is superiority, which I'm calling confidence. The next thing, insecurity, which I'm calling humility. And the last and the final thing is impulse control. And what they mean by this is the ability to resist temptation. And in Christian circles, we call that self-discipline. And, you know, I would say this. I would say that instilling self-discipline or impulse control in your children might be the hardest thing you'll ever do as a parent. I mean, how do you teach self-discipline? It's self-discipline. They have to get it. And it, you can model it, and you can teach it, but something has to happen. And see, here's, here's the thing about self-discipline or impulse control. It does not come naturally. Let me give you an example. So you and I are standing there, and I take a stick, and I draw a line in, a line in the sand, and I say to you, don't cross that line. What do you want to do? You want to cross that line, don't you? Right? There is something about human. What do you mean don't cross that line? If I want to cross that line, I'll cross that line. And we cross that line. There's something within us that we have trouble disciplining ourselves and controlling our impulses. God had the same problem with Adam. Right? Remember? He he, he put him in the garden. And then he he says this to him. He says, Adam, you need of any tree you want. But don't eat of the tree in the midst of the garden. Adam goes, what tree? What tree? What What fruit? I mean, if he hadn't brought it up, maybe he wouldn't have noticed. But he brings it up and says, don't eat of that tree. You read the story. Two minutes later, he's standing at the tree eating it. Thinking, Adam, what is wrong with you? We have problems. Our human nature is not given to self-discipline and impulse control. And see, here's what I'm trying to say. If you give someone too many rules as a parent, if you box them in with a bunch of rules, they're going to cross those rules. Because we don't have that level of impulse control. You draw a line in the sand, people are going to cross the line in the sand. So God actually didn't draw lines in the sand. You know what he did? He gave us this big, wide highway, this path, this vision for our life. And he said, here's the two ditches on either side. Just stay out of the ditches. This one's murder, and this one's stealing, and this one's adultery, and this one's false witness, and so forth. And between that, you have a lot of room to maneuver and live your life to the fullness. And what you end up doing is you end up developing a sense of self-discipline because you're not boxed in and massively restricted. You're actually given room to maneuver, but there are still some rules. And you know this is true, that when you have children that are brought up with no rules at all, they are the most unruly and undisciplined and bad behaved kids you'll ever find. We actually need some parameters. And so God gave man some parameters, fairly wide, we give our children some parameters fairly wide. You don't need to give your kids 100 rules. You need to give them a few rules that really matter. and Pick them carefully. So when I was growing up, my dad only had a few rules. One of his rules was I was never allowed to get a motorcycle. He said, if you buy a motorcycle, you will be kicked out of the house. Second rule was, if you do drugs, or I even hear you did drugs, you're kicked out of the house. And so I thought he was just being a grump about that. He's a grump, doesn't want me to have a motorcycle. You know what, by the time I was 25, I had lost two friends to motorcycle accidents and one cousin to a drug overdose. I realized what my dad was doing. My dad was trying to protect me. God's doing the same thing with the Ten Commandments. He's not the cosmic killjoy. What he's trying to do is to protect us from ourselves. Now my dad's third rule was this. Those of you that grew up in the 60s will know what I'm talking about, is that we weren't allowed to have long hair. And there was this big battle. How many of you remember that battle with your parents, those that are older? And we weren't allowed to have long hair. Because if you had long hair, that probably meant you were a drug addict. That's what that meant. And so here's what happened. My older brother, Brad, he ends up uh, turning 18, moves out of the house. Guess what he does? First thing he does is he grows his hair long and gets an earring. My dad tried to shame him into submission and called him Brenda. <laughs> Every time he came over, he called him Brenda. He had his friends calling him Brenda. It didn't work. My brother didn't care. Meanwhile, I'm three years younger, and I'm engaged in this ongoing debate with my father about my hair. And so I couldn't use my brother as an example because he figured he had long hair, he must be a drug addict. And I said, look, Mike down the street, he's 15, and he has long hair. And he says, oh, and if Mike jumped off a bridge, would you jump off a bridge? I went, yeah. What's that got to do with anything? (laughs) How how do you remember that argument of your dad's? If Mike jumped off a bridge, would you jump off a bridge? Well, of course I'd jump off a bridge. What do you mean, if Mike jumped off? I'd go off the bridge before Mike goes off the bridge. Why are we talking about bridges? I thought we were talking about hair, and now we're talking about bridges. And I want you to know, I'm jumping off that bridge. What bridge are we talking about? <laughs> I think you're missing the point, he says. See if you can guess this date. Happened in Winnipeg, March 4, 1966. Snowstorm. Biggest snowstorm in Winnipeg history. Buried the city for an entire week. Here's a picture. The snow drifts, for those of you who weren't around, were up to the tops of our houses. We never had snow like that before. It was amazing. The whole city shut down for a whole week. And you could look, look at this next picture. You could literally walk onto your roof from the snowbank. And all I wanted to do, I'm still on jumping, by the way. All I wanted to do was jump off the roof into the snowbank. And my dad would not let me jump off the roof. It was only like four feet to the snowbank. And for some reason, he didn't want the kids in the neighborhood climbing around the roof and jumping off. It seemed ridiculous to me. And so, you know, here was a problem. Exactly 30 years later, 1996, we had a huge snowstorm. I don't know how many of you remember this. Shut down the city for two days. It wasn't as big as 1966. And there we were. Kids were at home. City was shut down. Snowdrifts huge outside. There were about six or seven feet high snow drifts. I said to the kids, they were all under 10 years old, I said, kids, get your snow suits on. We're going outside. Kathy says, what are you doing? I said, I'm taking them outside. We're jumping off the roof. <laughs> She said, What? I said, We're taking them. I wasn't allowed to do this 30 years ago. Now we're doing it. And so, so they all put on their snowsuits, all under 10 years old. We went up. We all jumped off the roof into the snowbank. It was fantastic. And uh, Kathy says, You're being rebellious against your father, 30 years older. Later, I said, No, I'm not. I'm the father. Now, these are my rules. And in our house, we jump off the roof. <laughs> I know some of you are thinking, what is the point in any of this? <laughs> My point is that you don't give them a million different rules. Pick your battles. Give them things that are important to you. Set the path before them. Initiate a child at the beginning of the journey. Put the side the gateposts up and let them have room to maneuver. And in doing so, they will develop this thing called self-discipline and impulse pulse control. Last and final thing, and I said I'd get to it, I'm just going to just bang it off real quick, and it's, and it's stay vigilant, the S in, in kids. And, and here's the last thing I want to say to you in this series. It doesn't matter how old your kids get, you're never done parenting. You will be a parent for the rest of your life. You don't, you're not done when they're with 16. You're not done when they're 18. You're not done when they're 25. You're not done when they're 35. You're not done when they're 42. You will always be the parent, and they will always need you. And so stay vigilant and never give up. If you look at the story in, in, in Joshua or Exodus chapter 18, we have Moses, and he's traveling with his father-in-law, and his father-in-law, he's worked for his father-in-law for 40 years in, in Midland or Midian. and so he essentially was his father figure. So we find Moses sitting in the desert, judging the people from morning till night. They can't go anywhere. There's a huge long line. And his father-in-law comes along Jethro and he corrects him, and he says, "Moses, the thing you're doing is not good." He says, you're going to wear yourself out. You're going to wear the people out. You need to appoint leaders over everybody. And it says that Moses took the advice of his father-in-law. He was parented, and he was corrected. Anybody remember how old Moses was when this story happened? Over 80 years old. Kids these days, right? (laughs) You never stop parenting. Last and final story is this. A couple of years ago, we were in Calgary. And at the end of the meeting that we were doing, this, this, these two ladies came up to me, mother and daughter, and the mother was so excited. She said, Pastor Mark, I want you to know I've been praying for my daughter for years, and tonight my daughter gave her her, her life to Christ, and I'm so excited. And I, and I looked at them, and I couldn't tell which one was the mother and which one was the daughter, because they both looked 100, and I'm not kidding. And I said to them in my cheesy way, I said, mother and daughter, you look like sisters. To which the mother said, oh, Pastor Mark, I'm 92. She's only 73. (laughs) She had been praying for her daughter for 50 years. And that day, her 73-year-old daughter came to Christ because you are never done parenting. That's the family vision. Your family is your fortune. And building the family fortune has nothing to do with money. Church of the Rock has services every Sunday at 1397 Buffalo Place. And we invite you to join us when you're in the Winnipeg area. If you'd like a booklet to help you understand more about God's gift of forgiveness and reconciliation through Jesus Christ, please contact us and we'd be happy to send you a free copy of the Book of Hope. visit our website at www.churchoftherock.ca. Thank you for watching, and God bless you.